It, it, it was. was. <laughs> and then he started talking. I, actually, I twitched and then the fingers started. <laughs> Hello and thanks for joining us on Sex and Life. This is the uh, podcast about sex and about life and how it affects our daily lives and how we interact with it. As always, we have producer Joe here. Nice to be here. Thank you, Eli. I figured you'd be happy that you got remembered this time. <laughs> and with us today is uh, my dear friend Brian Finch and Henry. And Henry, my almost three-pound chihuahua. He's such a cutie. And he's quiet, too. He's very quiet. A lot of, a lot of small dogs are, are yappy. Yeah, that's why I paid a lot of money for a breeder to get a good <laughs> chihuahua. <laughs> you don't want to skimp there. That and LASIK. That, that, <laughs> yes, yeah, well, definitely, yeah. <laughs> and we had talked to, to Brian before on uh, a previous venture that didn't do too well. It was called Porncast. But Brian has been in porn. Right, yeah. Brian? Yeah, once upon a time. It's, when I look back at it, it's, uh, it's like, did I do that? But then I had some stuff happen in the wintertime where I had to take all my belongings and put them on my balcony. And there's still the video cassette of when I did Hotel Cazzo in Italy. <laughs> it's on there. It's a, v, it's, it's, it's a VHS tape, but it's in the European PAL thing. So I not that I really want to watch it because it was crazy. I hated the guy I was with. So... But it's there on my balcony every time I go out. It's like, yeah. It's it's almost like a lifetime ago. Yeah. Really, because I mean, I, I did porn 15, 20 years ago during that span. It was just, it was a totally different world. It's a great experience, but when you get older and your body changes, it's like, no, nah, I don't really want to see that. <laughs> How did you get into porn? Well, oh, that, okay, let's do the shorter version. I was a really super shy kid, but I always had this curiosity about things that would terrify me. Like the first time I saw porn, I was in my teens, never had sex. So I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to do that and have cameras. Like I couldn't, but I was curious. And then, you know, years and decades go on. And in my 30s, I need to get a computer for work. Um, this is back in the 90s. Then I started chatting a lot on because that was such a novel thing. It's hard to believe now that chatting online is novel. It's like, wow, I can talk to people. And from there, I was, I, I was approached to do some photos for a website. Now, I'd seen ads for these kind of things, but I had no confidence. I just, I would be crushed if I was rejected. I would just have to go home and cry. So I would never, but I was curious. Because I couldn't quite imagine doing it, so I got asked to do this. And I thought, they know what I look like, so let's do it. And I went over to the studio, and there were two younger guys around my age, very nice. And uh, we started taking photos in various stages of dress, and that was going well. So then near the end of it, I was like, do you think you can come? I yeah, yeah. So we go up to where it's a loft, and we go up there, and I jerk off, and they take photos and that ended up being on i was supposed to go on his website this was before it was an amateur i wouldn't i don't want to say amateur porn but people put in their own photos this is before all those websites were available where you could put up your dick pics and all that stuff so there was still kind of novel so he had that going on but he wanted to create another site to drive traffic to it so i got the name alex and it was all <laughs> Alex and his big banana. <laughs> and I had no idea that it was going to get as popular as it did. I mean, in, in the big internet terms world, it probably 
wasn't a lot of people, but for me being naked, 4,000 people a day was a lot. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't, pre- I was okay with it, but I wasn't prepared to be recognized. I think if you just think about how many people you meet in your life that you don't just see in like one day or in passing in five minutes, I don't know if I know 4,000 people. I think I do. I mean, I guess if I took a tally, I'd probably maybe do that. But I could just as easily be like, maybe I only know a thousand people. Yeah. Maybe I only really need to know five hundred. How many of them are just Facebook friends? Well, <laughs> I have six hundred Facebook friends. I'm very proud of that. It's like when I was doing porn. It was I think the first or one of the first uh, gay male jerk off sites where I'd sit and I'd talk to people and I'd jerk off and they watch me jerk off. It's kind of fun back then because it was the frontier. Yeah, well, it wasn't, you didn't have to have a you know webcam. Anyone can you know call themselves porn or do porn or whatever. It's such a broad spectrum of things now. Yeah, it's, just turn on your webcam when you have a date over and upload it without their knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think release. Not forms, that I do that. But release forms are, are nice. I seem to recall at some point you being a fluffer. Yes, that's when... What is a fluffer? Well, that's when when you're on a set and the guys need to be hard, so you just start to suck them off until they get hard enough to do their... They get their wood. You're a wood enabler, I would call it. This... I've only done two big studio porn things, but I'd done tons of amateur stuff. And I'd only done that because I had gone into a store a porn shop and saw a video and looked at the back and there was this guy I knew on it and I just thought if this guy could do it I must be able to so I sent my photo in and it's all online and forgot about it and six months later they contacted me and I was flying off to San Francisco and that morning I thought I would go to the B&B and drop my stuff off and shower and what have you but no they took me right to where they're doing it and there's still, there's guys, you know, working on the set and painting, and I put my luggage down, and there's a guy who's getting his photos taken, who's going to be my scene mate, and um, I just, and the photographer just waves me over, it's like, we need you. So I walk over, and I put my hand out to shake the other guy's hand, and I'm Brian, hi, I'm Patrick, nice to meet you, and got on my knees and helped the photo shoot. Well, that's very uh, magnanimous of you. You're a very nice guy. I, um, now, one of the one of the things that uh, make you unique is when you're doing stand up and storytelling. You talk about your HIV status. Yeah. Um, God, I'm feeling articulate today. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I don't do it a lot. Um, I need to do it more because it makes me nervous. But I guess my fear is that. People will change the way they see you, and then they'll put you in a box, and you'll forever be that guy. Uh, But on the other hand, it's stuff you don't hear about a lot. And I wanted to put it into comedy because, for me, I started public speaking back in 1987 to uh, to educate people on what it was like to be HIV positive back then because it was a different time. People didn't want you as a waiter. They didn't want to go. You know, people, staff in the hospital would slide food in on the floor because they didn't want to walk in. Uh, There's a lot of hysteria. So it was, uh, I felt important at that time to try to um, humanize it a bit. So I was doing more and more and more and more stuff. By the time I got to comedy, I had been in a documentary, you know, all over the place. 
And What's the I, name of the documentary? Positive Lives, I believe. It was following six of us that went to the International AIDS Conference in 2006 in Toronto. Uh, all of us had never been to one before. Um, and that was interesting because they premiered it at uh, Blur Street Cinema and never thought I'd see myself on a screen, nor did I want to. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but I made it through. Uh, so I had done that. So getting into comedy, I felt like I was hiding all this stuff because it's just natural for me. It's not that I want to talk of it all the time, but when you block things off, then you, I feel I'm hiding shit. So one night, were you there when I did that? That was, I think it was into the groove. I just planned to do like, I had all these dark jokes about being HIV positive. I wanted to do. Yeah. I, I think I was there and that's what's got us talking. So I decided to do it that night, and I was nervous as hell. It's on the Danforth. And then there were more comics than normal, so we got cut down to five minutes. I was like, how am I going to do this in five minutes? So I got up there and just said, you know, guys, we don't have time to warm up for this, so this is spit and shove comedy. (laughs) It's going to be rough at first, but you'll grow to love it. (laughs) And uh, fortunately, I mean, they all were into it. They thought it was it was great. Well, so com- that was comics have a pretty dark sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good tool in my pocket if there's people I hate in a crowd and I want to dry them out and <laughs> make them walk. <laughs> but the reaction was so great; like people got it. I have a dark, dark sense of humor. Now, do you find that a lot of people who are HIV positive or have AIDS also have a dark sense of humor? Because most of the ones I met have. Yeah, I think anytime you're dealing with something that's challenging, a lot of people, the stuff we say between ourselves, would, you know, someone on the outside would probably be horrified. How, how long were you, you positive uh, by the time we started doing public speaking in 87? It was only a year. It was a year. I got the date mixed up. It was 88, but at this point, another era. <laughs> uh, it was Well, 80s really were. I mean, in the early 80s, it was still known as GRIDS. Yeah. Which was gay-related immune deficiency. Well, at that time, I was so shy, I could not do public speaking. In university, if I found out I had to do it, on the first day when they tell you everything you have to do in the syllabus, I would just go straight to the registrar's office and drop it. Really? I could not do it. It was horrible. It was terrifying. So when I got asked to speak to these nurses, the background on that is someone who was uh, on the ward in palliative care had died. And a nurse I know was speaking to another nurse on the palliative care and said, well, at least Terry's not suffering anymore. Now, back in the 80s, these were horrific, awful deaths that were going on. And the other nurse turned to her and said, I don't think he suffered enough. And so when I heard that, I thought I have to do this. You know, I have to get over this fear because people need to, to learn, you know, what it's like. And that's just not acceptable. Unfortunately, it really helped change the attitudes of people. So then I got invited to something else and then something else. And talking to nursing students, high school students, going in the media. And then I became the poster boy. And, well, at least uh, you're a pretty poster boy. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> that's how my dad found out was through TV. Do you find it cathartic talking about HIV on stage? You know, whether you're doing stand-up, whether you're doing storytelling? I do. It, it's really funny, though, that it makes me so nervous in this context, although I've talked about it in so many others. 
Uh, it's being, I guess, because I, I was like, can people deal with humor around this? So I need, I need to do it more. But I do find it cathartic. I think it's great to do these in unconventional settings because people normally wouldn't hear that kind of stuff. Well, I think maybe that's the difference is because if you're talking about it at a conference, it's people who've come to hear about it. Yeah. You're talking about it at a comedy show or a storytelling show. There are people who've come to hear comedy or stories and and aren't necessarily prepared, I guess is really the only only way to phrase that. uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it all depends on the context. Open mics are really, you know, wham, bam, you're like in and out. So they're probably not the best venue for it because you only have a few minutes to get in and get out. I find that storytelling is a better, better format uh, because you, I can get up to 10 minutes sometimes or even longer. So you can wave in and out. The one story that I do about how I got into public speaking, which I sort of did now... I start off with that serious stuff and personalize and let them know that, you know, I'm not some real insensitive jerk. And then I talk about all the stuff I want to say, and then I get into my dark humor. And then I've got them on my side. Hopefully. Yeah, well, uh, all the feedback I've got is is that they, they the, have been so... Have you ever had any negative feedback? Or? No, no. Um, only that, you know... It's a better subject for storytelling or a one-man show because you have time to get into it. Yeah. It's it's really hard to do that uh, as just a series of jokes. It's a real spit and chub that way. It's almost as if you, know, you open up about it and you build up to it and then you can t- only tell like one or two out of five jokes. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what some of them were. They're just things we say between friends. I remember the one about the chihuahua. Chihuahua. Oh, oh, the dog. Yeah, yeah. And I just got, I got this dog from the Humane Society, and they said he was ten years old. It turned out he was probably not because he would have lived an incredibly long time. And I was so happy to have him, and I'm bonding, and I, I take him to where I'm working, which is the Toronto PWA Foundation, which is for people with HIV. This is in 1992, so it was a different time. And someone's petting my dog that works there, and I'm happy to have my dog. Like, Here's my dog. And they say, what's his name? And I say his name, and how old is he? And I say 10 years, and that's just, I don't know, unpleasant tones. Is Why'd you get a dog so old? Without thinking, I said, because I wanted a pet I'd outlive. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's and hilarious. never got brought up again. So back in... in I guess it would be the 90s. I was hanging out downtown. And someone had said that people with HIV or AIDS should be marked, like branded or tattooed kind of thing. And not in some place public where everybody could see it, but in some place where only people that they were getting intimate with would see it. It's funny. There's a satire site kind of like The Onion, which had a, a piece making fun of that kind of thing and then they had right above the pubic line HIV positive uh, and that's what this this person has had suggested because there is the danger that people don't disclose their status and yeah. knowingly infect other people yeah that is a whole huge huge wide range of stuff like, on one hand, if somebody is actually going out and maliciously trying to pass this on to people, 
that is a problem and they should probably be in jail. However, if you go to have sex with somebody and it's safe and all those things, because when my day was like, you just make sure you take care of yourself and, and that's that. Now the day is, now the onus is like, you didn't tell me, so I'm going to put you in jail. And that does a lot of wrong things. Like the Supreme Court ruling now is that you don't have to disclose if you're what is called undetectable. And what that means is if you're taking the medication and the, the, the virus is suppressed, there is no activity whatsoever of the virus. So that means you're not able to expose somebody. And there's more and more and more and more research that it's studied uh, folks who are in what called serodiscordant relationships. So one's negative, one's positive. And they just... They try as you might, it's not happened. It's just not happened in the studies. And the the, the landscape is changing. There's a, a medication called Trivada, which if you're in a high risk, you know, it, it was politically incorrect to say a high risk group. But the, to, to be honest, there are groups of people who have more risks than others. So if particularly if you're a gay guy and you're just having lots of sex, you can take PrEP. And that will that will protect yourself as well. It's called pre pre exposure prophylaxis. Now, if you put the two together, I mean, the, the risk these days are so small. The hysteria is still the 1990s. Yeah. But the reality on the ground is that if you're suppressed, undetectable, this is extremely extremely difficult to get. Try as you might. Uh, but if you're not undetectable and taking the medications legally with the, the ruling, it would be considered an assault to not tell somebody. Yeah. But there's things that happen like on sex sites, grinder, and then you're all just going out to get fucked and suck cock and do all this stuff. And now you're having a hissy fit because you've done all this stuff. You've barebacked as a bottom. You've taken all these risks and then you put the onus on the other person. Well, that's, that's something I'm in jail. That's something I always found weird. It's uh, I lost a friend over this many years ago, like 20 years ago. Uh, and he had said that he was positive. He told me. And he said, I was worried about telling you. And I said, why? And he said, well, because I didn't want you to beat up my ex. I said, but the onus is on you. Like, you didn't use protection. Knowing what kind of guy he was and that he was unfaithful... And all that kind of stuff. To, I mean, in my way of thinking, if if you don't use protection, you, you're at least partly responsible for for your situation. Are you not, or is that just me being insensitive? I don't think it's insensitive. It's a whole messy area where there's no clear cut answers. You know, I had different philosophies over the days. When I first knew, I thought if I'm at the baths or whatever, this is a context where nobody's disclosing anything. And you're not going to have anything. You're not going to have a conversation. You're walking into a sauna and you're leaving. That's a situation I wouldn't say anything. Or if it's just some one-off. Now, this is in the gay world, which is completely different than the straight world. Or if it's just like a one-off thing. But if it was somebody I was going to see again or have a relationship with or what have you, um, then I would disclose. And I would get all sorts of reactions like, why is that necessary? You're telling me to other things. Fortunately, it hasn't been, I haven't really had bad reactions for the most part. I think because I'm so open about it that they can weed themselves out. So, I mean, so in your experience, it's, it's as if people are 
maybe not even thankful that you're disclosing. It's just, I guess, because it's assumed that you guys are going to use protection or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But if you're not, you definitely need to have that conversation. Yeah. You really need to have that conversation. And then I've had guys that I tell... And they're like, well, I'll do it anyway. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. Because we're still the ones that are being criminalized. So that person can still change their mind and go to the police and put me in jail and make me a sex offender. So at the end of the day, it's still word versus word. Everything can be safe, proper, disclosed. That person can still go to the police and put me in jail because they won't. It's on me. So that's the problem with having it criminalized. Yeah. It needs to be a public health issue. Their public health means that you can deal with this. Sometimes people, it's, they've immigrated from another country, their language skills, their self-esteem, um, their mental capacity. There's a whole bunch of issues, but throwing everyone in jail over really... It's just... It's just Seems to have worked with the drug war. Yeah. <laughs> And by that, I mean oh, yeah, not but at all. Let's go in jail. That'll really contain it. <laughs> <laughs> now, it seemed to me in, in the 90s, the numbers were dropping as far as people becoming infected. Yeah. And then if I remember correctly, there was a newspaper article in the uh, early millennium that was saying that the numbers were on the rise again because younger people were thinking it was safe to not have protected sex. I know they're going up. Um, I I don't know what the general feeling is with the younger population because I'm not really with them. I think there's a fatigue about it all. Like, we just want to have sex. And there's a lot of strategies, like what's called sorting. So if you tell me you're negative and I'm negative, we're just going to do whatever we want. Um, which is not a good strategy, in my opinion, because people don't always tell the truth. A lot of people don't know. Like, the people who are most infectious are the ones who most recently acquired it. It's called the acute phase. You're highly infectious, and you have no idea. Yeah. So you're going around telling people you're negative when you're not, and it's not on purpose. But those are the ones that are... I had fooled around with some people who didn't live in Toronto, and they were like, no, that's just a Toronto thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I lived in Winnipeg. It was, that's that's Toronto or somewhere else. And then I lived in France when I was 19 in the south. And it was like all the Parisians, stay away from the Parisians. See, and to me, that's very shocking that you would actually admit to living in Winnipeg. Yeah. <laughs> not, not a lot of people admit to that. I got it in Winnipeg. That takes work. <laughs> so, now, you start public speaking in, in 88. Did, were you... Did you consider yourself an activist? Not really at first. I was just going out and doing my thing. Then I started to become more involved with some organizations. So maybe then. When I came into Toronto, I started to get involved with some other, some more activist-like organizations. So then then I would consider, consider myself that then. People always have the notion that uh, activism is like the old act up days where you chain yourself to some pharmaceutical company. Or wear signs or whatever. Yeah, and that's that's kind of old school. Now it's more getting dressed up and meeting bureaucrats and people in power and decision makers and doing that kind of stuff. Um, and I guess there's the odd demo, but I, I don't really know how effective those demos are. 
And then I just had enough of it. Started comedy and it was like, I just want to have fun. So how, how long did you do it for, do you think? Well, I did it from, you know, I was involved with HIV from the very beginning because I got hired as a telephone counselor on the Manitoba Health AIDS STD line three months after I found out about myself. Wow. And um, just some interesting calls on there because people are anonymous. Yeah. Farmers in northern Manitoba having jerk-off sessions. <laughs> hookers for great cup parties wow uh, all sorts of things um so i've always been involved and then i took a break i worked for a makeup company and uh, did that and then i stopped working with them and went on disability which is a whole other story and then i kind of got back into it so that got me traveling a lot actually where some of the places you went all over Canada, Africa, Australia, Africa's a big place, Kenya, South Africa, Rwanda. Wow. Um, Were you there with all, during all the fighting in Rwanda? No, that was a little... Oh, the, the Rwanda stuff? That, has, that happened in the mid-90s. So it's funny, when I was going to Rwanda, people were like, is it safe? So, yeah, it's safe. That was like how many years ago? It's amazing there because I don't know how two groups of people who massively slaughtered one could all get along. I, we have a hard enough time with Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how they, they all can just sort of forgive and forget. And everyone's had massive loss and they're so matter of fact about it. Do you think maybe that's part of it is because they've had such massive loss they they turn around and say, well, life is obviously too short to carry this kind of bullshit in your heart. It could be it. Uh, that's probably a factor. Life is also hard for people, so they have to try to just get through with their basic needs. Now, I can't imagine uh, any African country being very liberal when it comes to uh, gay rights no 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 I did not say a thing I can't count the amount of times I've been asked if I was married <laughs> really yeah and getting some flirts uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like wow well, if I want to go to the other side this would be the place to do it <laughs> uh, yeah you don't it's it, most places it's criminal I wouldn't know if you know, and I was very open about my status there, and they had not experienced a lot of things like that. And so we had a lot of bonds, and I just don't want to get into that. Yeah, that's a whole other mess of worms. Yeah, because then they'll be... What was it like in Australia? It was very quick. This whole trip was around the world in five weeks. I've, I left Toronto flying east and kept going until I came back to Toronto. Wow. So we'd gone to Africa, to um, Kenya for a conference, and then over to Kigali in Rwanda, and then flew down to South Africa and over to Australia. And there was an international conference there. And at first I hated it because I was in the wilds of Africa. I'd been gorilla trekking where, um, what's her name, Diane Fox? Yeah, yeah. I'm losing the name. 
in that region. And then suddenly I'm plopped down in, in Sydney Harbor, Darling Harbor, and I feel like I'm in Disneyland. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know about this. Uh, but I came to like it, but it was very, very quick. And then we flew to Ayers Rock, which is like flying to Alberta to see a rock. Some people like that. I was. It's and a rock. Then we flew from there up to Cairns and saw the Great Barrier Reef. And That's nice. That was nice. I met this woman who had a son, 17 year old son, on a boat for the, going snorkeling. And she turns to me and says, uh, Yeah, my 17 year old son, we're here with the Make a Wish Foundation. He had testicular cancer. And he's all right now. And I turned to my friend. Uh, she's positive as well. I was like, when do we get our wish? <laughs> he just lost his left nut. <laughs> he's going to live. <laughs> so what was one of your, your best memories from, from being an activist and traveling? In traveling, my best memory was connecting with these women who were all HIV-positive survivors of the genocide that had been outcasts. They, Some of them were homeless. Some of them were just getting money by selling fruit. And there's a lot of, um, what's the word, shunning that goes on, which is really horrible. And so these women were brought together with a microcredit sew-op, sewing co-op where they come together and they have a job sewing dolls and bags and they sell them internationally. And so for the first time, they have money, they have employment, they have other people they can talk to, and they're so full of joy. And when my friend and I went to speak with them with an interpreter, we were just talking about our experiences, and they just adopted us as their family. And when we came back, my co-op, prior to that, I told the story to my co-op, and they actually raised $5,000 for me to bring back for these women. And when I went back, we told them about it, and they just got up and some started crying and they just I'm too white to try to even do that. The pictures of me dancing with them it's like that guy's really white. I think he's taking a shit. <laughs> That's not dancing. But they were dancing and singing and hollering and they were calling me Pappy and uh, that was so cool and I just learned two phrases that I could say, how are you and I'm fine and uh, then I'd go around to everyone and ask them my only thing I could say. And, uh, <laughs> and it was so nice. It was really a touching moment. That would probably be my best memory. For me, it would be like, first thing I have to learn is how to ask for coffee. I know. We even stayed in the hotel where the movie Hotel Rwanda took place. Oh, really? Which is quite interesting. It's weird to sit there and just imagine what's going on here. I had the movie, but I got rid of it. I've never watched it since I've been there. I, I, yeah, I've never seen the movie, and it's it's one of those things where I kind of wanted it because I heard it's a really good movie, but at the same time, it was a fucking horrible thing that happened. Yeah, and, and yeah. genocide, no matter where it takes place, is horrible. And uh, the most gut wrenching moment is when UN comes to take the foreigners to leave the hotel and they have to leave everyone else behind yeah it's like yeah it's tough it's tough but they're so but they sound so happy I think again going back to the whole idea of uh, life is fleeting yeah so you take what joy you can where you where you you can and so there's so many other things that happen in those countries that uh, we take for granted here 
Well, I went one, one woman invited us over for dinner and her, her house is half finished. There's the only electricity is a wire that runs up the wall to get to the light bulb. There's no kitchen. You would do it on a fire. And the, the, the real treat was having uh, soda pop. Yeah. It's like the big treat. Yeah. It's, uh, my mom's gone to Kenya and South Africa a couple times. And uh, she comes back with some pretty interesting st- stories. There's uh, a bush baby, which is like this little tiny monkey-like animal. They uh, forge at night, you know, bugs or fruits or whatever it is that they eat. I can't remember. But one night, one came down and put her babies in my mom's hand and then went off to forage. So my mom had to sit there with his baby in her hand until the mother came back, mm. which was like hours later. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was very interesting. So I'm guessing, you know, support has been different in places like Africa or Australia. I mean, how different was it in Australia as, as compared to Canada? Australia is pretty good. They have a crazy conservative government in that. I have a few Australian friends, so I see periodically what they're doing. And and some things are not as ahead and other things are they're quite ahead. Like the, I think the PrEP, what I was talking about, that's the short name for the taking the preventative medication. I think that's approved for coverage for people to take, where that's not the case here. There's a lot more uh, IV drug use there. Really? Tons, tons. It's like it's like the Vancouver of Australia. Yeah, yeah. Australia is the there. Vancouver of Australia. Right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Try that one again. Because hmm? I'm just trying to figure out if I should be going to Australia. Okay. Definitely. It's great. It's great. I'm like, fuck, why did my ancestors not, you know, commit a crime? <laughs> <laughs> why do they have to be upstanding citizens? Because I could be living here. It's really funny to, to see, because uh, I, I went in there winter, quote unquote, it's 15 degrees out and they're in parkas and hats and gloves. <laughs> wow. I love I love 15. 20 is my favorite. If it's like yeah. around 20, that's when I'm happy. So if I could find someplace where it's 20 all year round. That would be great. I would live there. And so if you know, write to the show. Tell us where it's 20 degrees all year round and we will move the show there. And uh, yeah. No? No. Trapped. <laughs> now you were talking about uh, before you had mentioned when you went on disability and you gave the impression that it was not an easy thing to do. Uh, no, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. I took where I was working had restructured and put me in a place where I really didn't want to be. And I took the easy way out. So I thought I would be on short term and figure out what I wanted to do. But I got into this crazy relationship at the same time and moved in for economic reasons. And it just blew up into tons of crystal meth and GHB and ecstasy. And it was nuts. I OD'd a couple times, taken to the hospital. Uh, what, OD'd on meth? No, it was or... too much GHB and a whole combination of other things. The problem with GHB is it's so easy to do too much and, and you black out and yeah. I'd wake up and just not know where I was. I've had entire orgies go on and miss them. Uh, or, I, I've seen a lot of girls when I, when I worked in the, the porn industry, a lot of girls do too much GHB or too much K. 
It's just I just stay. I just think GHB is horrible. You should just not do it. Just don't do it because it's so unpredictable. You don't look like a stereotypical meth user, though. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, you look healthy. All the all the. Well, I haven't done it in since thirty two, years. Two thousand and three, I think. But a lot of them, they get the, the pockmarked face, like the... Yeah, it can really age you. Yeah. Fuck and up your teeth. You know, you you have nice teeth. You know, you don't have a pockmarked face at all. or you know, You're still a very pretty young man. Yeah, thank you. Since I'm turning 50 in about less than three weeks. Holy shit, eh? It's like I was never 49. I was 48, almost 50, 50. That's what my head, as soon as I turn 49, I'm almost 50. <laughs> uh, well, I haven't done it for a long time, and I don't, I don't even smoke pot now, or I don't drink. You don't drink? S- cigarettes and some coffee, that's my only couple of vices. Yeah. And really bad porn. Yeah. Did you, did you watch porn? Not too often, but I'm taking testosterone again because my levels are low, so yeah. there's some motivation there. Has it killed the industry? Like, a lot of times, if someone, let's say, works in special effects, and then they go and they watch a movie and be like, yeah, I know that special effect, and this is how they did it. Mm-hmm. Did working in the porn industry kind of do that for you for porn? Like, knowing, well, he's off getting a fluffer working on him. He's not really all that turned on. And I know that they're just looping this. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes I tend to avoid those. But some guys are going to be like, yeah, he's not into that. That's probably four hours and they're checking their watches. Well, (laughs) 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 this guy's behind him. I kind of watch straight porn, too. Do you? Yeah. I would probably have sex with women if it weren't for the fact that I was positive, because it just feels too messy and complicated. You could have protected sex with women. I know, but I, you know, I'm, I, I have to tell people. Yeah, that was just my thing. I have to tell people, uh, just because that makes me more comfortable. And two, you can just Google me and find out. Yeah, but well, are there not like? It's harder. I have a friend who's positive, straight guy, and he has a girlfriend, and it seems like they managed to figure it out. Uh, I put on uh, an ad on a buy site, but and I because I tend to just put it out there right away. There's no bites at all. Are there not like social events put on by like people like PWA or ACT, where it's like you know uh, HIV positive social dance? Well, I've never. Please forgive me. People forgive me for saying this. I just haven't met a positive woman I'm attracted to. If that would happen, you know, who knows? But for me, it's like being a little kid that's scared. And it's like going to this other side of, I don't know. It's funny. (laughs) There's a guy I know does a story about who's straight, but he watches gay porn. And um, I'm like, that's okay. I, you know, I watch straight porn. I I have to hide it. My friends judge me. (laughs) Now, I even wrote a couple escorts saying, I've never had, because this would turn me on. I've never had sex with a woman. Well, I have now, but at the time, I've never had sex with a woman. I'd like to, da 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 da. And then they don't write me back. It's not very good uh, customer service, is no, it? No, no. <laughs> but I get a pro. Why not? Why not? Um, so you have had sex with a woman? Yes. Once? Once. Because it's on my to-do list. Uh, I arranged to meet a couple 
This is back 2002, maybe 2001. I uh, met up with a couple in an afternoon. They were both married, but not to each other. And the weird thing was, is I hadn't really told them much about my background. So I had to act like I'd done this a million times before. That's <laughs> and how was it? I had fun. I had fun. It was an extremely hot summer afternoon, so yeah. that was a little hard. But once I got over my... The whole thing for me, though, like as a gay guy, you always hear like urban legend myths about the vaginas. Oh, and really? About, like, it smells like fish. It's just, you know, it's nasty. da 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 So in my head, I think the oral sex part, if I can do that, I can do anything. And so (laughs) I think I was so nervous and eager that I didn't even introduce myself. I was just there. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of advice do you have for anybody who's just found out that they're positive? Like, did you find that a lot of these organizations like PWA or ACT have been very helpful in, in I haven't been involved with many for a long time, but usually those are those are the places where people go. People I meet these days in terms of their reaction because it's a different lay of the land now, for the medications and stuff. So I don't I think some some people I've met are freaking out, others are extremely nonchalant about it. But it's a good place to go. I think the best thing as with anything is just to meet other people. And you can chat about it and share information. And I think uh, generally at first you feel fairly alone, feel like um, a walking contagion and uh, a lot of that. So it takes a little time to process it. Yeah. Kind of scary. It's not easy to have to use the word infected to describe a part of yourself. I have no idea what it must feel in this day and age because it's so different. Like when I found out everyone was dying, there was no, the thought of treatment was it was as like thinking of a vaccine and a cure. It was so remote and impossible. Just never, ever, ever thought there would be a treatment at that point. There was some clinical trials with particular drugs and then in the 90s they discovered that if you combine a bunch of drugs it's quite effective and that's when things changed but in my day it was like there's one of my uh my close friends was in his 20s during that era during the 80s said he was burying five friends a week kind of thing yeah it was tough it was was, he lost like 200 friends in the 80s for the that decade I I have I couldn't possibly count because I was involved on the national level with Canadian Aid Society and a whole bunch of stuff. So I'd always get the update of who died in all the different cities yeah. or people I volunteered work with. When I went to Toronto PWA, the guy who was doing the job I had had been on disability, but had died, and the funeral was the day before. And there I am sitting in his desk. Wow. And feeling kind of weird about it. I worked there for a couple months. Yeah? At BWA when they were on Church Street. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I first was with them when they were on Young Street, so that's how long ago go that out, that was. But the whole subject's hard for me because at one, po- at one point I, I don't want to be defined by it, and I just want to be seen as like a regular normal person. 
On the other hand, I do have shit to deal with. Yeah. My question is, um, does it bother you when you uh, tell it to somebody and then they feel um, more empathy towards you? Like they like they don't want to be as maybe direct with you because they don't they want to be a little more sensitive to you and yours. Fortunately, that does not really happen much, but it's weird. Maybe back in the in the yeah the old days, I shouldn't do hand gestures on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I I stopped going downtown when when I quit doing cocaine. I quit hanging out like on Church Street and stuff yeah. like that. Because it's 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 a trigger for me. Like I'll walk down Church Street now, and I can get I get the taste back. Yeah. So um, I don't go down Church Street very much, but when I do, and I run into someone I knew from back in the day, and they're like, and I was like, oh well, how's this person? Oh, they they died. <laughs> oh well, how about this person? Oh yeah, they died too. You know, it's it's uh, it's kind of uh, shocking for me, you know, because. I, um, mm. I didn't grow up like I wasn't in my twenties and eighties kind of thing, and so the the number of people who died in in what I would think was a premature age. There's a lot, even from overdoses and all sorts of things. Yeah, we're really cheery this Sunday. We are nice <laughs> Sunday afternoon talking about death, destruction, and plagues. <laughs> no, there's well, Brian, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. And uh, all you listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. Um, on behalf of Joe and myself, uh, say uh, thank you for tuning in and join us in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And if uh, you um, want to write in, of course, you can write in to us, a sex and life podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, so subscribe to us on there, the Sex and Life podcast. And Twitter. Twitter. At- Sex and Life PC. So follow us in those places. We've got a Facebook group. Facebook group. Facebook page. We have a group and a page. I'm trying to tell people not to use the group anymore. Just use the page? Just, just the page now. Have, okay. have you written to, to the Facebook people see so I get rid of the page? Is that what? I don't know. I tried to delete it and I couldn't get it to delete, so maybe that's what i got to do. Well, I didn't we'll this nonsense. <laughs> this is the kind of uh, post amble that I put as the music is playing to play. So, okay, you're right, it stopped. <laughs>